This podcast is a production of Community Covenant Church in Eagle River, Alaska, a place where real people meet a real God to live in a real world. For more information, check out our website at communitycovenant.net. The scripture reading this morning is from Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 through 7 and 15 through 23. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground, but streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them, and whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam... No suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. I wonder if we'll ever be put into songs or tales. What? I wonder if people will ever say, let's hear about Frodo in the ring. And they'll say, yes, that's one of my favorite stories. Frodo was really courageous, wasn't he, Dad? Yes, my boy. The most famousest of hobbits. And that's saying a lot. (laughs) You've left out one of the chief characters. Samwise the Brave. I want to hear more about Sam. Now, Mr. Frodo, you shouldn't make fun. I was being serious. So was I. Samwise the Brave. I love that story, and every chance I get, or as as long as I'm here, I'm going to try to... uh, to use sermon illustrations about that reflect on the Lord of the Rings. So sorry about that in advance. It's a great story. Um, th- thank you very much for giving uh, many of the staff permission and the opportunity to go to the Covenant Pastors Midwinter Conference in San Diego, California. 
uh, before you become green with envy about the warm weather and the palm trees, I want you to know that it was cold and rainy the entire time we were there. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and I stopped off at home to visit with my boys on my way back, and it was really a, a wonderful time to reconnect with my, my boys to uh, see what kind of trouble they're staying out of. And it just so happened, my young son, Lars, who's a soccer player, he had a tournament, the last tournament of his club soccer playing career. And on Saturday, when I was there, they were playing in the semifinals. They won the game, and so they had the final game on Sunday. And I, I looked at the time when my plane was going to leave, and I could make probably first half of the game, and I could get to the airport in time to get home here to uh, Eagle River. And so I'm watching the game. They score three goals, and I'm thinking, this is great. That my son's final game of his club career as a U18 soccer player, and they won the championship. I get in the car with a buddy. He takes me to the airport. We're kind of rushing because I, I delayed it as far as I could. I get a text from one of the parents uh, sitting on the sidelines of the game, and they said, uh, your son just scored the fourth goal. <laughs> but the last goal of the last game of his under-18 career, my son did it, and I was not there to share in the story with him. Anyway, everybody loves a good story. Everybody loves a good story. And, I, and the reason I told you that little bit of story about my son is because I want to tell you another quick story about my son. Uh, the same son, Lars, when he was about four or five years old, he, uh, we lived in a, in a kind of a nice little neighborhood in Concord, New Hampshire, and uh, his best friend lived kind of catty-corner to where our home was. And so it was really kind of cute to see my four-year-old little son with his little bicycle and his helmet that was way too big for him, you know, ride his bike to his friend, friend's house, and his friend's name was Colin. And they played together after school every day. I mean, everybody needs friends like that, right? I, I had a friend like that. Um, but uh, um, during that time, I was still telling stories to my children before they went to bed. And so when, when I went into Lars's room at night, and to tell them stories, I created two fictional characters. One of the characters' names was Shroud, or Lars, who is my son's name, spelled backwards, right? Shroud. The other character's name was another little boy, and his name was Nelok, which is Colin, spelled backwards. And so for, for years, or it seemed like years, I don't know how long it was, I would tell these stories to my son about Shroud, the adventures of Shroud and Nelok. And I don't know if he knew that I was telling stories about him and his buddy. And the reason why I tell you that is because everybody loves a good story. It doesn't matter how old you are or how young you are, or how sophisticated you think you might be. Everybody loves a good story. And today we are beginning a new series of sermons leading up to Easter, and we will be looking at the most important story of all. And of course, you know what that is. That's, you're here this morning because of that story at some level, perhaps. And that's, of course, God's story. And God's story is a story that begins in Genesis that we read for you just a moment ago. But it goes from Genesis to Revelation in the book. But it's really a story of Genesis to the cross, right? It's a, it's a story of creation to recreation. Everybody loves a good story. So let me 
tell you a, a good story. This quote that's on the screen behind me right now is a quote by N.T. Wright. He's a well-known biblical scholar. Is it there? Yeah. And uh, this really kind of summarizes for me why stories are important, even for us as sophisticated and complex adults with many layers and and nuances to our lives and, and, and many sad parts to our stories and many kind of rabbit trails to our stories. But N.T. Wright says a story is the best way of talking about the way the world actually is. And that's exactly what uh, Samwise the Brave and Frodo were talking about in that little clip that we looked at a moment ago. A story helps us frame the world in such a way that we can relate to it. And, and, and since the beginning of time, when human beings were, were telling stories and capable of communicating with one another, there have been stories that animate and provide a way for us to understand our place in the world. That's what storytelling is about. I remember when I was in kindergarten, uh, every, uh, every day there was story time. We went to the front of the class. There was an ugly, uh, uh, probably lime green carpet, shag carpet that somebody uh, 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 gave to the school for kindergarten. Do they do that now? People give stuff to the schools? Yeah, probably. Anyway, so we would all go up there. And I love story time because there was this young woman named Barbara Spots who um, I kind of had my eye on. And she had her eye on me, and we always would sit next to each other, and she would put her head on my shoulder as we listened to the story. Now, I don't remember the stories so much as I remember Barbara Spots, but at any rate, it doesn't matter. From, from ancient Norse legends of, of conquest to contemporary Inuit uh, passing on their stories of the great hunt, human beings, you and I, were wired to view our lives through the lens of story. Now, we, we naturally, as I intimated a moment ago, we, we naturally tell stories to our children. And uh, it's a way of, of helping them understand and make sense of their world. That's what I was really trying to do when I told the story uh, to my son, using his name backwards and his, and his friend's name. And as we grow older, we may become uh, more distant from stories. We don't sit around on, on lime green shag carpet and listen to somebody reading us a story. We may be too busy to sit around and tell stories, but, but it still happens. Storytelling is still a critical component of our culture and of our lives. Do you know where the storytelling takes place mostly in our culture? Television. Television tells a story. Um, motion pictures tell stories. The best-selling novels that we like to read, you know, and they keep us up at night, tell stories. Poets tell us stories about the world. And, and believe it or not, and I, I'm, I'm delighted that this is still true, that preachers are also storytellers in a sense that help us frame and understand the world in which we live. Now, the best stories are the stories that speak truth about life, right? When we hear them, we go, huh? Yep, that's right. That's true. The stories that we remember in our lives, uh, throughout our lives, are, are stories of bravery, 
you know, whether it's a couple of hobbits returning the ring to Mount Doom or a young mother conquering breast cancer, those are stories that we remember because they have bravery in them. They're, they're, but not all stories are equal. We have to uh, consider the fact that uh, there are different stories, sort of grand stories, that even in our culture people want us to pay attention to. There are, at least in my view, view, there are at least three competing narratives or three grand stories that, that kind of shape the stories that you and I find ourselves in in our contemporary culture. The first grand story that is told in our culture, and you'll know this the moment I say it, is the story called scientific naturalism. This is a story of human advancement through the development of a species where the strong survive and the weak die out. This is the story of, of the rise of civilizations and our eventual success at mastering our world. That is the story of scientific naturalism. This story is rehearsed every day on the news, in our schools, in our universities. It's the same story as the story of the nerdy guy who overcomes all obstacles to get the girl in the movies. It's the same story. It's not quite exactly the same you know, details, but it's the same story. It's the same story as the rugged individualist who moves into the wilderness, maybe into the wilderness of Alaska, to overcome the challenges uh, that are presented there. So that's the first grand story that's being told. And there are aspects of that story are, that are true, and there are aspects of that story that are not true. And the second grand story that's told in our culture, I'm calling the story of capitalist consumerism. You see, this story is based on the notion that we find meaning in life by what we have and what we consume. In this big story, humans are merely consumers And our ultimate happiness is a function of how much we consume, how much stuff we have, how many storage pods it takes us to move from here to there. Now, I was talking with uh, one of our military families the other day, and they they were saying, yeah, when we moved here, when we moved to our first deployment, wherever that was, we had it. We barely filled half of a pot. Now, when we moved here, it's two pots or whatever. You see, that's the that's the story. Capitalist consumerism. And we are also told this story in a variety of ways almost every day. If we are a student, this is what the story sounds like. The story sounds like this. Learning isn't necessarily about the mastery of the subject. It is about getting the right set of tools in order to get a good job that will ultimately enable us to consume more stuff. Now, no professor at the university is going to tell you that that's the story, but if you dig right below the surface uh, in many, in many uh, educational contexts, that's the story. The reason why you're going to school to learn is so you can get a good job and you can have stuff. Then there's a third grand story, and I want to spend kind of the rest of our time this morning on this one. And the third story is the story of creation and recreation. The third story is a story about a creator God and a redemptive sacrifice and ultimately human freedom. That's that's the story. This is the story of, of creation 
and fall. And, and God's choosing a people to be, be the bearers of God's purposes for all humankind. And, and, and the coming of one in whom those purposes are ultimately fulfilled, and you know who that is, that's Jesus, of course. So that's the third story. There are a number of things that I could say very quickly about all of these stories, and I'm going to, I'm going to be very brief on this, but this is some of the things that I think are true. Each of these stories tell a certain truth about the world. Okay, so you can't just look at one of these grand narratives that I've described and say, oh, it's, it's, it's absolutely false in every way. Because that's, it's not true. There, a story would not be compelling and would not be able to be told and retold if there wasn't some aspect of truth to each of them. Each of these stories is also comprehensive in their scope. They, they encompass all of life and they bring meaning and they bring order to how we live. Right? You think about the three stories I've just told you. They're comprehensive and they bring some sort of meaning and order in, into our world. The next observation I make is that each of these stories are embodied by communities. They're not just held by one person, right? If one person held on to this story, when they died, it would be over. The story would disappear. But these stories are told and told and retold within communities of people, and they encompass often large groups of people rather than just one person. The next observation I want to make about these three stories is that they are all, in one way or another, religious stories. Even though those who tell the first two stories, scientific naturalism and uh, capitalist consumerism, they'll try to convince us that they are not religious, they are. Each of these stories are rooted in some level of faith commitment on each storyteller's part, and, and they always deal with, with ultimate assumptions about life. And that's where the faith part comes in. And then finally, each of these stories claims to tell a true story of the world, and they all, they all in, invite us as hearers to come and live into these stories. So those are the three grand stories that, that capture our attention in our contemporary culture. You might be able to think of others. You might, you might be able to think of sort of a hybrid of these. But the Bible tells the story that I want to spend the rest of my time this morning uh, looking at in more detail. It tells, it tells of an unfolding story of redemption against the backdrop of creation that was read for us uh, in, the, in the scripture this morning. The biblical story makes, a, as you can, you, you can see, a comprehensive claim about how the world is. When we read the Bible uh, and we read it with a big enough vantage point, it's telling us something about the world. It's telling us something about things that are important, that are big, that matter. And the reason why I want you to know this and, and reflect on this is because sometimes in our, in our post-enlightenment, rationalist way about doing things, uh, which most of us in this room were educated in that context, what do we do naturally? We zero in and we analyze and we break things apart, right? So that we can understand them, so that we can put them back together and, they, and, and maybe they'll be better than they were before. That's what post-industrial rationalists do. I want for us, for the next eight weeks, to take a step back 
and look at this biblical narrative, look at this biblical story from a, from a broad sweeping scope so that we can see the whole arc of this story. You see, this story is not just meant to be understood as kind of a local tale that the folks over at Community Covenant Church tell each other, you know, kind of delude each other with. This, this story is not just for one ethnic group to tell in a particular time or, or in a particular place. This biblical story begins at its, at its heart with creation and it ends with recreation. And that's why it's such a great story. So when we read uh, Genesis chapter 2, as we read it a moment ago, in verse 4, it says this. Here is the story of the heavens and the earth when they were created. The Lord God made the earth and the heavens. At that time, bushes had not appeared on the earth. Plants had not come up in the fields. The Lord God had not sent rain on the earth. And there wasn't any man to work the ground. But, but streams came up from the earth. They watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed man and he made him out of the dust of the ground and so on and so on. So you can see this story talking about significant themes. And then, then later on in verse 9 it says, The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground. Their fruit was pleasing to look at. You see, in this story that I've just uh, read for you, this is not a, a scientific description of the origins of the earth. It's not. So if you're in uh, high school taking introduction, introduction to biology, you don't have to worry about there being mutually exclusive claims being made here. There isn't. The biblical writer is not providing us with a, with a phys, philosophical cosmology that is about the order of things. That's not his intent. The, the Bible is telling us the story of God. And it's telling us the story of God and God's activity in creation, where God is creating and caring for and recreating the world to fulfill God's ultimate purposes. Someone has said that, uh, that we come to know God through the recounting of the story of Israel and the life of Jesus is, the, is decisive for our truthful understanding of the kind of God that we worship. And I think that's exactly right. If we read the Bible with an intention to understand the nature and the character of the God that we worship, it changes how we understand the world in which we live. If we read the book as a science textbook, um, it's going to come up far short of what our expectations are. I find it much more enjoyable to think about God and, and what, be, what, what kind of God is it that would be involved in, in this kind of creation and recreation than I do sitting down and reading formulas or, or, or wishing I could read formulas about the origins of the, of, of the world? So, so what can we learn about God and God's story and our story if we read these opening chapters of Genesis with this in mind? And I want to uh, present to you three things that I believe that we can learn from, from this story. The first is we discover uh, that God is 
a God who creates. Seems simple. But it's not. God is a God who creates. And it's in this initial act of creating that some of the most profound questions on origin find their meaning in, for us as people of God. You see, God is, is, is the one who from the very beginning is rolling up his sleeves and involved in the mud of creation. I love that story. You know, where, where he takes a handful of mud and forms it and breathes on it and out of that the first human being was, was created. Now, the, the competing narratives that I've described for you earlier, they're going to say that the answer to the question may involve God, but, but, but they're not going to spend much time there. They're more interested in, in viewing creation without God's involvement, right? And there are a variety of views kind of in that continuum of creation theory where one can land. And I, and I want to be clear with you today that we don't have time to go into that. And I'm fr- frankly, I don't know uh, where the debate really can, can land us that's really helpful. So, you know, call me a wimp or call me whatever you want. But I'm not I'm going to sidestep all that stuff because I don't think it matters in terms of what the Bible is trying to tell us about the nature of creation. Suffice it to say that we believe in and we worship a God who is responsible for creation one way or the other. I don't care how he did it. I don't care how long it took him to do it. But God did it. And that's what matters because when we look at creation, it it changes, if we look at creation this way, it changes the way that we look at the world around us. For example... I was here last fall, I'd just gotten here, and I heard people talking about termination dust. I had no idea what they were talking about, and now I know, because I'm an Alaskan. It's that first snow that that reveals the end of summer, oh, too short summer, and the beginning of a new season, the changing of seasons from, from early fall. It reminds us that we go through seasons in our own lives where we are in transition. Another example, the shortening of days is not merely a function of the location of the moon and the angle of the earth in relationship to the sun. I mean, if you want to understand it like that, you can. But it's more than that. It is a marker that reminds us that no matter how dark and how cold the winter may get, it will not last forever. And the same is true for the dark periods that each and one of us occasionally have to walk through in our lives. It will not last forever. The creation around us paints a picture of a God who is actively creating and recreating. And and here's the cool thing. The cool thing about worshiping a God who creates is the recognition that this same God who creates also places the impetus for creating in us His creation. And I know some of you here know that very well because you're artists and you're carpenters and you're artisans and you make things with your hands. That's what I'm talking about. You know, we start off with sort of simple childhood 
uh, stick figure drawings, that is an example of the impetus for creativity. And, and, and maybe when we go to engineering school, we come back and we create these sophisticated blueprints for a steam turbine generator or whatever. But regardless, we are creating something because God has put the, the, the impetus in each and every one of us to create. And the story that we find ourselves in is a story of a God who creates. And it's a creative impulse that enables us to do the same kind of creative stuff that God does. Not with the same kind of grandeur and awe-inspiring power, perhaps. But think about this past week. The, the, The meteor or the asteroid, I can't remember which one it was, that... We're expecting this one to go, you know, into Earth's orbit, and everybody's going, don't worry, it's not going to hurt anything. So everybody's got their telescopes focused on this, and another little thing comes flying through the horizon and causes more injury in Russia than any, um, ast- is it asteroid? What is it? Whatever, whatever. Uh, more injury than any other uh, asteroid in history. Wow. That's, that's the, the creative impulse of God who, who, make, who, who reminds us that we don't have as much control in this world as we think we do. But I want you to hear this. When we create, whatever it is that you do that's creative, whether it's you know, cleaning your gun or you know, whatever, when we create, we are exhibiting the character of God. And, and this is a very different story from the story of scientific naturalism, which uh, which, which talks about a world in, in very a, sort of antiseptic terms. This is a very different story than the story of a world that sees our place in the world primarily as consumers of information and, and stuff. This story about God is a story that we find ourselves in. The second characteristic that we discover when we look at these texts is that we discover a God who cares and companions. We discover a God who cares and companions. Genesis 2.15, the Lord God put the man in the garden. He put him there to work the ground and to take care of it. The God who creates is also a God who cares. The biblical story describes that the first man and the first woman just didn't sit around in paradise eating figs and and drinking fruit of the vine. They were called to care for the creation that God had given them. And why did God do that? Because God cared for it. In fact, I read one author this week that said God was the first environmentalist. Maybe. Maybe. He, he's doing it. He did a better job of it than we did, probably. But nevertheless, we see in this text that God not only cares, but but God also wants to companion with uh, with his creation. I've just maybe created a verb here that d- d- doesn't exist, but you get my point. God is interested in companioning with the creation that God creates. God sees that it is not good for man to be alone. So he creates a companion for man. But more significant than this, God desires to be a companion with us, even today. In the the grand narrative of scientific naturalism, there is a a subcategory of those 
who may believe in God and may even concede that God had something to do with creation. There, there are those that, that believe that. But when God was finished creating, these folks believe that God went on a very long vacation and left the world to fend for itself. And I believe that the biblical story tells us a different story about God. God did not go on vacation. God is actively involved caring for and companioning with his creation. And so, too, we, in some small way, have responsibility for this creation that God has given us. We have begin, been given sort of access to, to the fruit of creation, and, and we have also been given shared responsibility for its care. But God's care for creation doesn't just extend to the natural world and, and to the environment, but it also includes his most intimate care for us, for you and for me. When we worship a God who cares for creation, we are placing ourselves in a story that suggests that we are not some random byproduct of, of the reproductive process. Rather, we are known by the God who formed the heavens and the earth. God knows you. He knows you by name. And this God understands all of the challenges that you are facing. This God listens to and hears your prayers of desperation, your prayers for relief. This God knows us and, makes, and, and knows what makes us tick and wants the best for us. That's what I believe it means when the Bible talks about a God who creates and cares and wants to companion with us. Now, the, 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 the capitalist consumerism narrative says that people are, are merely objects to be used for the purposes of their, our own consumption, but the biblical story makes the claim that God cares for each one of us. We are not just objects to be used and thrown away. See the difference? And then finally, the third thing that we discover about God from the, the creation story is that we worship a God who not only creates and who wants to care and companion with us, but we also worship a God who is in the business of re creation. Here's a fun fact for you. Okay. I've, I know I've been hitting you with a lot of uh, intense ideas here, but here's the fun fact. Did you know that every 30 days or so, you get a completely new layer of skin? Did you know that? Now, I don't want to know where all that old layer of skin goes, but it's true. Even in that simple 30-day process of of the rejuvenation of the outer layer of our dermis, we see God recreating us, recreating us. And the God of creation didn't just create, the God of creation is in the business of recreating. And God wants to recreate you, no matter how far aflung your life has gone. The story we find ourselves in is not a story of finality. It is a story where the Creator is continuously interacting with His creation. 
The story we find ourselves in is not just a story that provides us with a little history or, or perhaps a few devotional thoughts that, that we can meditate on you know, daily. The story we find ourselves in is a, is a grand story that, that describes the, the broad sweep of history and it, and it encompasses all of the questions that we have about God and faith and life. And ultimately, it's a story that describes the, the trajectory of our own stories better than any other competing narrative that's out there, in my humble opinion. And, you know, I think that the God who, who's in the business of recreating looks at us and doesn't expect for us to have it all put together. I think that the God who's in the business of recreating is, is fully prepared to look at the messes that we have made in our lives and the, the fakes and the fragile and the frailty that, that we kind of live on, the edge that seems like we're about to fall into the chasm. God looks at that and says, it's okay. I'm in the process of recreating you into to the person that you were intended to be from the very beginning. You see, the God who, who's in the, in, in, the, in the business of recreation recognizes our, our propensity to get distracted. God gets it. God, God knows that we wander off the trail. And like a good trail guide, the God who recreates provides a way for us to find our way again. So here's, here it is. What, what does this mean? Where does this leave us? I was talking with uh, a friend recently, last week, down in uh, San Diego, and he was telling me a very painful experience from, uh, from his past. And, and it became pretty obvious to me as he was telling this story that this story, this painful story, had become sort of the painful event at the center of his life. And it affected how they told the story. It affected how they saw themselves at that present moment. And you know what I'm talking about. We all have those places, those events, those crises, those sadnesses. And this is not just true for my friend. This is true for probably anybody that walks on the face of the earth. We all face struggles that, that threaten to knock us off our feet. We all face challenges that knock us down a few notches. Each of us carries you know, some shame of growing up with some particular experience that we wish was not part of our story. I know this. You know this. And we can't, we can't turn back the clock and fix those experiences. We, we can't really erase those events from our memory. You know, Maybe some therapists think you can. I, I don't think you can. They are part of our story, whether we like it or not. But just because we've got painful experiences in our stories, the good news is, is that we don't have to be shaped by the pain of our past. We, our future is not determined by the suffering and the pain that took place in our lives and our past. Because God is in the business of creation. God is in the business of caring and companioning. And God is in the business of recreating. And when we begin to see our story as part of God's grander story, a wonderful thing begins to happen. 
God takes our stories of pain and he enfolds them into God's larger story of redemption through Jesus. And once our narrative had this big blotch that, that every time we thought about our lives, we, we, we stumbled on that experience. We couldn't get around feeling the pain of that event. Now, when we begin to see our story in the context of God's larger narrative, there is a sense of joy and there's a sense of hope that, that, that God is not finished with us yet. God is both creating and recreating us at this very moment as we sit here in Community Covenant Church. How, how does that feel to you? Especially those of you who walked in here today carrying the burden and the pain of some past event in your life. How does it feel to know that, 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 the, that the story that we find ourselves in here now is a story where God wants to enfold our pain into that large story of redemption? Here's the good news, and I'll, and I'll finish. The good news of the story of God that is being written on the human heart, it is a story of a God who creates It is a story of a God who cares and wants to be companions with us. And it is a story of a God who right at this very moment is in the business of recreating and enfolding the pain and the sorrow and the sadness that we carried in here this morning. I don't know about you, but rather than than living out of a, a story that says that meaning in life is based on the survival of the fittest, we can live into a story of a God who comes alongside of us at our moment of weakness and says, when you are weak, I will make you strong. Rather than living out of a narrative where the winner is the one who dies with the most stuff, we are invited into a story of a God who knows each of us intimately and invites us into being co-creators with God rather than living out of our own narratives that are filled with sorrow and sadness, we can begin to see our lives in the context of this much bigger story where God's ultimate act of salvation is offered to us out of the pain and the suffering of a son who gave his life that we might know life like we've never known it before. I don't know... I don't know what story you find yourself in right now, but I know this, that God's story is a story of creation and care and recreation that is there for you right now and will be there when you're ready to receive it. All you have to do is ask. We want our lives, God, to not be day-by-day drudgery as we seek to escape the pain and the sadness and the sorrow of our life. But we want our lives to be filled with joy and significance and meaning. We want our lives to be part of that larger story. We want the story that we find ourselves in today 
to be a story of redemption and hope and recreation. Would you do do that for us, even now? In Jesus' name I pray.